We are uh, in the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, dealing with the false teachers. Listen to the word of the Lord, verses 8 through 10. Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. So Peter writes this young church in Asia Minor, a minority church getting ready to go into what we know now to be a two and a half century persecution. And he says, be very wary of this issue. Do not overlook this fact that there is a God who is above time. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years in the mind of God. And this God who is glorious and eternal is patient. He is gracious. He doesn't want any of his people to not receive salvation and repent of their sins. And do not overlook this fact that there is a coming day of judgment when the patience of God will be exhausted. He says don't overlook because they're surrounded by a monolithic culture that that spoke against the character of God and spoke against these issues, and it was easy to be swept into this mind-numbing disbelief. And as as I thought about that, I thought about a prayer from Psalm 119 from David's pen. He says this, he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things. It's, it's not things like bad, in our culture, bad movies or bad websites or stuff like that. Primarily, necessarily, is things that just numb you to the reality of eternity. And I thought, if that's the cry of David in the Psalms, and if that's the plea of the first century church, how much more is it true for us? Because we're surrounded by 24-7 news, shows, internet, media, overload, time after time, day after day, hour after hour. And it's easy, church, to be numbed to eternity. So I say with the Apostle Peter, don't overlook beloved, which is a term of endearment. Dear friends, dear family, dear people, beloved, do not overlook this, that with the Lord a thousand days is as a year and a year is as a thousand days, and that God is patient and that judgment is coming. Don't overlook these things. You see, these false teachers swept in to the early church, and we've studied for weeks now. They came in among them, and they secretly taught destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, denying the reality of the cross, the sufficiency of the cross. And Peter says, because of them, many not just a couple, but many will be led astray by their sensuality and they will blaspheme the truth. It's a very strong teaching. And we see in chapter 3 that there are two areas of 
teaching that Peter deals with, one is that they, they mock or they scoff at the character of God. And they scoff at the fact that God is and God has spoken. And they, they say, you know, where is this God you've spoken of? And so everything just keeps on going on and on and on. We're born, we live, we maybe have a family, we work, we laugh, we play, we die. Next generation, born. They work, they are educated, they have family maybe, they have relationships, they, they live, they play, they die. It goes on and on and on. It's an endless cycle of nothingness. Where is this God? And the second thing they mock is they mock the judgment of God. Where's this judgment? Don't live as if there's going to be a judgment because there's no God who can be defined. Therefore, there's no judgment. And, and so they, they, they mock the character of God. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, but they deliberately overlook. They deliberately overlook the fact that God is a great creator God and that he's already judged the world with a flood and he's going to judge it again. In Romans chapter 1, it says in verse 18 that, that, that men suppress the truth. And then he says this in Romans 1, verse 20 and 21. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, the creator God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They suppressed the truth. How do they suppress the truth? Paul says, well, they see the creation. They see that there's a creator God. They see that he's there, but, but, but they suppress the truth. And Peter says they deliberately overlook. I said last week there's a teaching called common grace, and, and do you understand this? There's common grace. There are many noble non-believers that are good neighbors and good employees and good employers and, and good friends and these noble non-Christians, because they're made in the image of God, they're able to appreciate beauty and mercy and kindness and truth. And, and then as you go down the scale, there are those, like in Second Peter, I just said the ug factor. They're given over to sensuality. They suppress the truth. They deny the reality of God. They have eyes, the Bible says, full of adultery. They seduce women. They're always on the prowl. They're insatiable in their, in their carnal appetites. They're waterless mist and clouds driven by a storm, Peter says. And, and if, because of the doctrine of common grace, we understand that, that people, because they're made in the image of God, can express beauty and truth and justice. And we understand that God, because people are made in the image of God, God has, the term that many use, has given gifts indiscriminately to all types of people. Some of the people that disdain the character of God and mock his character can write beautiful music or paint beautiful pictures or be involved in technical um, assistance or medical research that gives us cures to diseases because God has given good gifts to all types of men everywhere. But there's also this part of the common grace. Every man has an innate sense and understanding there's a great creator God. They, they know that. They, come, they know that from conception, basically, intuitively. There's a great creator God. But they suppress that truth, the Bible says. Many of them suppress it. Push it down, push it down, push it down. And that's just what happens with the false teachers in 2 Peter. And that's why Peter says, beloved, dear, dear people, 
Dear men and women that I love intensely, beloved, understand this about the character of God. God is eternal. He's above time. He is almighty. He is the king of all creation. That Jesus spoke creation into existence. And understand that he is a patient God, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all of his people to come to faith through repentance. Understand that, that this patient God will one day judge the world. Don't overlook this fact. Don't be seduced by the culture. Don't, 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 don't be snookered by these people. In, in, chap, in Romans chapter 2, Paul says this, verse 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He says, don't presume upon the patience of God. Because God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance as you see the cross. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So says, don't, listen, I'm saying to you this morning, if, you're, if you've never trusted Christ and you can hear my voice, listen, don't presume upon the patience of God. I'll tell you why. I'm going to try to explain something to you. And I, hope, I hope you get it. I hope I'm right. I believe the Bible teaches that there comes a point, and no one knows when that point is, but there comes a point when the patience of God with a culture or with an individual is exhausted. And he says, I'm going to let them go and experience the fruit of their bad decisions. That they're going to reap what they sow. That the patience of God is exhausted. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, there are some, there are some Jewish people who hated the gospel. And this handful of Jews in different cities was, was, was prohibiting the free preaching of the gospel so that people could be saved and spend eternity with him in heaven. And so Paul writes about these people who were hindering the gospel and murdering God's people and imprisoning them, and they stoned Paul and left him for dead. And this is what he says. These are men who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and they displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now listen. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So as to always fill up the measure of their sins. Their sins are, they fill up their sins to the limit. The patience of God says this far and no more. It's hard to, listen. Or in Genesis chapter 15, there's a man named Abraham, the father of the Jews, and God says, I've chosen the Jews to be my people to usher in the Messiah. And he says to Abraham, now Abraham, verse 16 of Genesis 15, he says, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. In other words, you're going to die. And they, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation 
for the sin or the iniquity of the Amorites, the non-believing tribes, is not yet complete. Now, I don't fully understand all this, but let me just say what I think it means. It means that, that the sin of the Amorites hasn't been completed yet, and so I'm going to give you the promised land when their sin hits the limit. Now, understand this. Matthew 23, verse 32 says the same thing. That there is a limit to the patience of God. We don't know what it is. So we preach Christ to people die. We preach it on their deathbed. We preach Christ to people on their deathbed. But, 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 but there is a place where, where God's patience is exhausted. And so I plead with you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, do not presume upon the patience of God. That's what Paul says. And that's what Peter says. And, and so we, he says, don't overlook this fact that God is God. He's above time. He's a patient God, and he's going to judge. In, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is giving this very hard teaching. And he talks about people who weren't repenting. He talks about Tyre and Sidon, villages where he did his work. And then he says this about Capernaum. He says, verse 23 of Matthew 11, and, and you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be, no, you'll be brought down to Hades, to judgment. For, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, stop. Sodom was shorthand for the first century Jew of really a bad place. Sodom was the ultimate and a place to deserve judgment. So he gets their attention. Boom. So if the works had been done in Sodom that had been done in you, Capernaum, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. Jesus says, you know, if Sodom had seen these things, they would have repented and remained to this day you have not repented, and it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than it is for you. So you see, proximity to the gospel, frequency of the gospel, heightens our responsibility. Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, who died a few years ago, raised in China as the daughter of physician missionaries, said this, he said, if God doesn't judge the United States of America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think she's right. And so we live in this day, this is a, this is a daunting age. This is the most confused, upside down time I've ever experienced in my 62 years as part of this, this, this culture. And we need to hear that God is patient with his people, with me, with you, but there comes a point. And, and so you, be very careful. We should live every day as if we're going to die or the Lord is going to come. In fact, there's an old confession of faith called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and he says, the day of the Lord's coming has remained a mystery so that we can sh shake off all carnal security, all security, and just, and just be, ever be ready to say, come, Lord Jesus. We're gonna, come, Lord Jesus. Throughout history, there have been people who've tried to predict, prognosticate the coming of the Lord. There's a group in the 1830s and 40s called the Millerites, named after William G. Miller, who was a Baptist layman in upper state New York who did a very intricate study of the book of Daniel and came up with all these flow charts. And he said, 
I believe that Jesus is going to come again in the 1840s, and they sent out all these publications, and it made headway in Australia and Canada and Europe and America. And the more they studied, they became a particular group. They said it's going to come sometime between March of 1943 or 19, uh, 1843 and March of 1844, probably October. And so they sold everything, and we used to waiting the coming of the Lord. It didn't happen. Then they had to reconfigure their charts. I said, you know, come on, guys. No one knows the day or the hour. In 1988, when I was a very young man here, there was a book that came out by an incredibly bright research physicist, I think he was, a, a, a Christian, and he wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons the Lord is Coming Again in 1988. Remember that, some of you that are older? Someone gave me, I was given three copies to read, about 80 pages, and it didn't happen. So we're to be ready and live with urgency for the coming of the Lord. Do not overlook the character of God. Do not overlook that God is above time. Do not overlook that God is patient. And so we go back to verse 5. They, they deliberately overlook. Deliberately overlook. Let me give you a few quotes. There's a man named Aldous Huxley, a very well-known British writer, very bright man. This is what Aldous Huxley said. I've heard this past week, and I thought, wow. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. We, my contemporaries, objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. See, they suppress the truth. They deliberately overlook. He says later, and I later placed this book for myself, no doubt as for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essential was essentially an instrument of liberation. So we don't want God to exist. We don't want there to be a hint that someone has spoken and we were responsible to that being called God. We didn't want that. There's a man named Thomas Nagel who's written many books on philosophy. He's a professor of philosophy at numbers of, uh, a number of Ivy League schools. got his PhD in philosophy from Harvard in 1963. And this is what he says. It's very interesting. I think I have part of the quote here. Yeah. He says... I am talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion. I speak from experience, being strongly subjected to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and it made me uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It just isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. He said, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He says, I don't want there to be a God. I want to do my own thing. I want to live the way that I want to live. And Ephesians 4 says that the people are darkened in their understanding Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Hear me. Don't overlook these things. Don't deliberately overlook these things. Some of us had to men memorize the poem Invictus in high school by Henley. And part of Invictus goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. 
I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It's a swipe at biblical Christianity. He says, it it matters now how how straight the gate. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew 7. It says, broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Many find it, but narrow is the road and small is the gate that leads to life. And and only a few find it. He says, I don't care about that. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. It matters not how how charged with punishment the scroll. The Bible says that we're going to give an account for the way we lived our life. He says, I don't care about that. I call the shots. Says, I don't want there to be a God. And I, th- I, thought about, I thought about these people, and I wanted to weep for Huxley and Nagel and Henley and these people. And I'm going, you know, when you see the beauty of Christ, the Creator God, Abba Father, the Holy Spirit who enlightens and opens and energizes and surrounds us with songs of deliverance, when you see that, you say, oh, let me know more of the glory and goodness and mercy of Christ. Let me hear the shepherding voice that calls me and goes before me and carries me through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me hear that voice and know that God who is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, says Hebrews. Let me know him, please. In the war between the states, there was a man named Thomas Jackson, Stonewall, and he won some brilliant battles with a force that was a third of the size of the northern forces he was fighting. He would go very quickly with his men, and he was the terror of the north and the toast of the south, and admired by both sides. And he was a living legend in his own day before he was killed in May of 1863 in battle. So Jackson didn't look like a general. He was a professor of philosophy and math at VMI and was not really liked by the students. They made fun. They called him Old Tom Fool, even though he was only 37, 36. Old Tom Fool, they, they mocked him. But when the war started, he showed himself to be a brilliant field commander. But he wore a beat-up uniform and a hat pulled over his eyes and would pray for his men with his arm lifted and sucked on lemons off. He was a strange guy in some ways. But it didn't look, look like a general. So one day, the story goes, he and his staff were going from point A to point B. And the quickest way to go from point A to point B is a straight line. And the straight line took them through a cornfield. And so Jackson was going through the cornfield with his staff, about 10, 10 people. And, and as they went through the cornfield, the man who owned the cornfield came out screaming shrieks and curses at them. He said, how dare you go through my cornfield? He said, I have a mind to report you to General Jackson. I hear he's a Christian man. He wouldn't stand for this. And the story goes his staff was kind of laughing, like kind of embarrassed. And Jackson sat there and said, sir, I'm sorry. I I, I am General Jackson. So the guy took his hat off and said, sir, I would be honored if you'd ride all over this cornfield with your troops. (laughs) And I read that and I thought, 1,000 times 1,000, that's the beauty of seeing Jesus. When you see the goodness of Christ, when you hear the words of John 8, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You say, Lord, gallop all over the contours of my heart. Gallop all over. I want to know this God who speaks hope and joy and peace and purpose. Please have free reign in my life. And so Paul Johnson, Paul Johnson, who's a British historian, wrote a book called Modern Times, 
a great book. He also wrote a book on intellectuals where he, he traces the, the development of intellectual life in the modern era and life of uh, Rousseau and Jean-Paul Sartre and Shelley and Marx. And he comes to page 342, the last page of the book. And this is what Paul Johnson says. The belief seems to be spreading that intellectuals are no wiser as mentors or worthier as exemplars than the witch doctors or priests of old. He says, I share that skepticism. Now stop. Paul Johnson is an intellectual. He's written numerous books. He's written in major periodicals all over the world at this time. But, But what he says, he goes on, he talks about this. He says, I would go further. One of the principal reasons of our tragic century, the 20th century, which has seen seen so many millions of innocent lives sacrificed in schemes to improve the lot of humanity is this, beware of intellectuals. The issue is, I'm going to preach on this next week, when you begin wrong, you end up wrong. When your presuppositional base is shot with error, you end up wrong. When you begin with this belief, there is no God. I mock his character. He is absent or non-existent. He has not spoken. There's no creation. This a beautiful unfolding reality. It's all a cacophony of nothingness. If you begin there, you end up wrong. You just do. And so he says, beware of intellectuals who live in this fashion, like Marx did, like Tolstoy did, like Rousseau did, like Shelley did. He says, just beware intellectuals. Now, at this point, church, I've got to tell you something. I'm halfway through my sermon, and I should be closing in about three minutes, so I'm going to. So I'm sorry for that. I should, I've been doing this long enough. I should have been able to do this, but we can't get to everywhere I want to go, so I'm going to pick it up next week. But let me say a few things in five minutes or less. Beloved, do not overlook these things. Don't overlook them. There's a man named Francis Schaeffer that many of us read years ago. I did read when I was first a believer, missionary from Switzerland, a first-rate thinker, the God who is there, he is there, and he is not silent, so forth, so a wonderful thinker. And this is what Schaefer said, and I think he's absolutely right. If you begin with the belief that there's no order, and there's no purpose, there's no reality that's true, there's nothing to really plant your life on. And if that's your basic assumption, you cannot live, you cannot live with the consequence of that worldview. Because if you live with the consequence of that worldview, there's no order, there's no hope, there's no purpose, there's no divine creation. If, if you live with that, you end up, uh, here's my columns, not my response. You end up in ultimate despair or you have diversions which are idols that will inevitably disappoint you. Now, ultimate despair, if there's nothing to live for and no hope beyond grave and you see the aging process, then, then, then life is horrid. Or if you can't live with the assumptions of your presuppositions, you end up creating all types of diversions or idols, we would say, that try to help you walk through life. I was reading an obituary this week of a man who was called a music genius by the name of Keith Emerson. He was a keyboardist and synthesizer. He was called a, a, a prodigy by those who knew him in the world of music. He 
early 70s, committed suicide two weeks ago because he found that he had a disease, a neurological disease that would eventually keep him from playing the keyboards, the pianos. And in his obituary column, one of his friends said this, he was a perfectionist. He was tormented with worry that he wouldn't be good enough, close quote. He was going to lose it. And so he took his life. The idol he made in his heart, he's a gifted man, incredibly gifted man, but the idol of musical performance because of a degenerative disease meant that he couldn't carry out what he wanted to do. So if that's his, your ultimate goal, then you're going to be disappointed. Now hear me. When you make idols, idols will inevitably disappoint you. Last week was Mother's Day. It was a wonderful day. You've got to love Mother's Day. And, and so Mother's Day is a hard day for many people for a number of reasons. But one day Mother's Day is real hard. It's what I call impression management. It's a new term. It means you've always got to be presented as on top of your game, really winsome, really with it all the time. And so you're, it's Mother's Day, and you get on Facebook. I think Facebook is, I don't have Facebook. I think it can be incredibly devastating. But because, just give an example. Let's say that you're married. And just, I'll give an example. Just pull it out of thin air. Just as an example. Let's say that you've told your husband something's concerned you four times the last two days. That would never happen in our house. But just if it ever happened, just for example... And so at the end of the second day, your husband looks at you and says, what's wrong? And you say, I've told you four times in the last 28 hours. And you say, and then as a husband, just if this ever happened to you, you go through the catalog of your mind. What did she say? What, 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 what? Then you look at her and you say, can you just say it one more time? And she says, boom. And then you do go inside say, she has said that five times now in the last 28 hours. And, but your wife doesn't get on Facebook and say, Dear suffering sisters in the realm of marriage, can you help me think through how to relate to a husband who understands with perfect clarity sports, food, and another subject that I will not discuss because this is PG. He understands these things with great clarity, but he misses everything else. How do you survive with a dullard? You don't do that. You don't do this. Oh, marriage is wonderful. Life is great. Facebook, Mother's Day. Oh, my children graduated magna cum laude, summa cum laude. They won the Heisman Trophy. They, 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 they can deadlift 2,000 pounds. I have great kids. They're wonderful. And you're reading that in your den, and you look at your kids and say, what went wrong? <laughs> what went wrong? You know? Let me tell you something. Everybody here is messed up. Every marriage here struggles at times. There's not a parent here who didn't think that maybe Joseph's brothers were onto something when they sold him into slavery because it's driving them crazy. Every parent has thought that sometime. Every parent. But you see, you read Facebook and you go, oh, everybody's got it together, but I don't. Nobody's got it together. That's why we need the cross. That's why we have to be very careful. That's why we have to deliberately remember we cannot overlook these things because it's all about the reality of 
of Christ. Let me close with this. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it's, it's in 1 Samuel 16. There's a guy named Saul who's the king of Israel. He disobeys God flagrantly. And, and the Lord says through Samuel, his prophet, Saul, the kingdom has been taken from you. And I'm going to give it to a man after my own heart. And so some time lapses, and the prophet Samuel, a godly man, hears from the Lord. The Lord says, I want you to go to this small village. I want you to go to the home of a man named Jesse, and I want you to take a flask of oil, and I want you to anoint the new king of Israel. And Samuel says, Lord, if I do that, Saul will kill me. He's a vicious man. And God says, I know, take a heifer with you and say you're going to make a sacrifice with Jesse and his family, which is not a lie. And as you make the sacrifice, you can anoint the king. And so Samuel goes to this very small village, and the elders of the town come out trembling with fear. Samuel, why are you here, they said. Have we done something wrong? He says, no, I come to just offer a sacrifice with a man named Jesse. Show me where he lives. He said, he lives down here. So he goes to Jesse's house and says, Jesse, just a family get-together now. Call in your sons. And so Jesse calls in his sons. And in the Jewish mind, the eldest child was the most blessed, got the larger share of the inheritance, and it trickled down from there. And so he calls in his boys. And the eldest named Eliab comes before Samuel. And it says that Eliab was a handsome man, and Samuel said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God said, no. And then the Bible gives us this verse. 1 Samuel 16, 7 is such a wonderful verse. God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so Samuel says, Jesse, bring in your other son. So he brings in a guy named Adonabad. And God says, no. Bring in your third son. God brings in, or Jesse brings in Shammah. God says, no. And we don't know the names of number four, five, six, and seven. But he brings in four, five, six, and seven. God says, no, 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 no. And then Samuel, probably pretty frustrated, looks at Jesse and says, Jesse, is this it? Do you have any more boys? He says, well, number eight is tending the sheep. But he's number eight. I mean, he's the youngest of eight boys. I mean, he, he barely gets a place at the table, you know. And Samuel says, bring him in. So he texts David. He says, David. <laughs> he says, David, come on. Come on up to the, to the house. Come on up. And David comes in, and the Bible says this. This is a beautiful statement. He was darkened by the sun, and he had beautiful eyes. And he was a handsome young man. And God says, arise, anoint him. He is the one. And I, I need to realize it's not about image management and Facebook. It's about playing to an audience of one. It's about not overlooking the fact that there is an eternal God who's above time, who is patient, who wants all of his people to hear the word, all people to hear the word and repent and believe, but who also judge. Judge is next week. It has to be next week now. But understand that. Play to an audience of one.